Hi, and welcome to SpondyCast, where we bring together the best medical minds, thought leaders, scientists, patients, and caregivers to inform and inspire the spondylitis community. I'm your host, Jill Miller, living my best spa life, knowing that how we meet today has the power to change everything going forward. Hi, and welcome to SpondyCast. Thanks for joining us. Our guest today is Dr. Abhijit Donvi. He is an associate professor of medicine at Yale University in New Haven, Connecticut. He did his medical school and internal medicine residency from Seth GS Medical College and King Edward Memorial Hospital in Mumbai, India. Dr. Danvi then did his clinical rheumatology fellowship at Oregon Health and Science University in Portland and research fellowship at the University of Nebraska Medical Center in Omaha. He is the recipient of the Marshall J. Schiff Memorial Research Award and Distinguished Fellow Award given by the American College of Rheumatology and the Jane Brickell Early Career Investigator Award from the Spondylitis Association of America in 2019. He has particular interest in the patient care and research in the field of spondyloarthritis. He is the founding director of the Yale Spondyloarthritis Program and his research focuses on early identification and diagnosis of axial spondyloarthritis. He's also a member of the Spondyloarthritis Research and Treatment Network, or SPARTAN, and Assessment of Spondyloarthritis International Society, also known as ACES. These organizations are expert researchers and clinicians on AXPA in the US and Europe. He lives in Glastonbury with his beautiful wife, Supriya, and his two boys, Dr. Danvi. Welcome. That's quite a resume. Thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for that kind introduction, Jill, and very nice to meet you. It's great to have you here. I know uh, in some of the research I did, I, I noticed the one word that recurs for you, and it's part of the reason I'm so excited to talk. Uh, you talk a lot about the privilege of being able to serve the spondyloarthritis community, and I think that's a a beautiful way to look at the work you do. Uh, what made you get into rheumatology and specifically axial spondyloarthritis? Well, uh, that's a loaded question, Jill. So I always liked internal medicine for uh, what it offers as you need to know the person or the patient holistically, not only their one organ system, but you need to know the patient as a whole as such to be able to best manage them. And uh, rheumatology is such specialty where you really need to have a handle on patients' uh, physical symptoms, their personalities, and the suffering that they are going through to understand where you can intervene and help. And rheumatology is one specialty where you are always curious because you are presented with several different uh, symptoms that you need to put the pieces together to come up with a diagnosis or treatment. So I, I am a curious individual, I guess, and that's how I started to like uh, rheumatology. And about actual spondyloarthritis, it's one of the um, relatively common but underdiagnosed uh, condition that I um, started to explore while I was doing my fellowship and I was 
very fortunate to have mentors like Dr. Atul Devdar or Dr. James Rosenbaum. And I guess that's where the uh, um, interest in axial spondylar arthritis really got deepened. And I have been uh, working in the field for last uh, close to eight years and enjoying myself. And at the same time, trying to serve the community of uh, patients with spondylar arthritis. That's wonderful. And both your mentors are uh, also guests on SpondyCast at one point or another. So uh, lots of commitment to the community. Today, we're going to get into the basics of spondyloarthritis, uh, kind of a 101 class. So can you talk a little bit about the different types of spondyloarthritis and sure. maybe overview and some symptoms associated with each? Sure. So, you know, the word spondyloarthritis means spondylo is spine and arthritis is inflammation of the joints. So as the name uh, depicts, this is a group of conditions which mainly involve the spine. And they are grouped together because they share common genetic, clinical, and immunological aspects. In the past, we thought about four prototypical conditions that would be included in this group called spondyloarthritis. And they included ankylosing spondylitis, psoriatic arthritis, reactive arthritis, and arthritis associated with inflammatory bowel disease. In the last two decades, we realized that these four conditions can present either in a way where axial skeleton or spine and sacroiliac joints are preferentially involved or peripheral skeleton where the extremity joints are preferentially involved. So for the clinical relevance and the treatment perspective, we like to classify these conditions as axial spondyloarthritis and peripheral spondyloarthritis. Axial spondyloarthritis has the condition ankylosing spondylitis that we are all familiar with. But we also have realized that patients may have all the symptoms of ankylosing spondylitis, but they do not have their x-rays showing the ankylosing spondylitis. So x-ray could be normal, but they could all be having symptoms that would suggest ankylosing spondylitis. And we would call these patients undifferentiated spondyloarthritis or pre-radiographic disease. And now we call them non-radiographic axial spondyloarthritis. So axial group has two conditions, ankylosing spondylitis and its precursor, non-radiographic disease. And the peripheral spondyloarthritis has the three remaining conditions, psoriatic arthritis, reactive arthritis, and arthritis of inflammatory bowel disease. Now, this classification is not absolute. It is, there is significant overlap. For example, patients with ankylosing spondylitis can have involvement of the extremity joints and the patients with psoriatic arthritis can have, can have involvement of the spine. So it really depends on what is driving the major symptoms. Based on that, you would call it either psoriatic arthritis or ankylosing spondylitis. Very interesting. It's not an easy thing to say. It's also fairly complex in the disease world. Uh, for 
first was was some of the differentiation and changes over the last 20 years driven by having a better understanding of gender and potentially ethnicity uh, manifestations of the disease? So for a long time, uh, we used to think about ankylosing spondylitis as a disease of men. So in the last, uh, so maybe 70s or 80s, we started to realize that women also can get involved with ankylosing spondylitis spectrum, I would call it. And then we thought in 90s that maybe the ratio between men and women is like 4 is to 1 or 3 is to 1. But lately we are realizing uh, with the advent of uh, our understanding or understanding of the non-radiographic disease, women can also get frequently uh, this condition, especially the non-radiographic axial spondyloarthritis. And the ratio there is one to one between men and women. So um, there are quite a few women out there who may have this condition in some form, but they are underdiagnosed or they are misdiagnosed as having fibromyalgia or anxiety or non-specific aches and pains. You've described a lot of people's journeys in those few words. Uh, so in terms of symptoms, if we were to look at ankylosing spondylitis versus non-radiographic, would the symptoms vary greatly? Well, that's a good question. So the so let's go through what are the typical clinical features or symptoms of spondyloarthritis in general, um, and especially axial, spondyl axial spondyloarthritis, where the, there is involvement of the spine and sacroiliac joint. And it can be involvement of the whole spine, not necessarily lumbar spine. It can be lower back, mid back, or the neck. So typical clinical features are chronic back pain that we call inflammatory back pain. There are some features that point a physician towards the possibility of inflammatory back pain and that particular physician has to really go into the details of back pain to understand the nature of inflammatory back pain. So we'll go through the inflammatory back pain features but that's the most common symptom of patients with axial spinal arthritis. The other features are inflammation of the peripheral extremity joints like ankles, knees, wrists, elbows involvement of the ends of the tendons or ligaments we call enthesis and the infl inflammation there is called enthesitis so ent enthesitis is one of the particular or specific feature of this group of conditions the common enthesitis you would have heard is plantar fasciitis or achilles tendonitis sometimes tennis elbow tendinitis around the knee joints so these are the common sites of enthesitis then we have some patients having anterior chest wall pain. So they are labeled as costochondritis. And sometimes they have these recurrent flares of chest wall pain that nobody knows what's going on. That's another um, underappreciated symptom, I would say. Among the non-musculoskeletal symptoms, there can be involvement of the eye, where it's called acute anterior uveitis or iritis. About 25% patients with ankylosing spondylitis may suffer with uveitis uh, one, at least once in their lifetime. 
The other one is skin psoriasis. About 10% of the patients with actual psoriatic, uh, actual spondyloarthritis will get psoriasis. Um, and inflammatory bowel disease, about 8% patients with actual spondyloarthritis will have concomitant Crohn's, Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis. So these are the features of spondyloarthritis in general. These are the features of uh, spondyloarthritis in general. And again, as I told you, if the predominant problem is inflammatory bowel disease, and if there is some involvement of the spine, we would call this as inflammatory bowel disease related arthritis. But predominant manifestation is spinal inflammation, and there is some inflammatory bowel disease, then we would call it actual spondyloarthritis, and the comorbidity would be uh, inflammatory bowel disease. Other thing that uh, I would say, there are some specific features of this group. One is strong association with a gene called HLAB27. The other one is clustering of these conditions in a family. So there, there are several family members that they can suffer from one of the spondyloarthritic conditions. And if we know uh, about the other inflammatory rheumatic conditions like gout or rheumatoid arthritis, what happens there is bone destruction. We call them erosions or there is a destruction of the bone adjacent to the joint margins. What happens in spondyloarthritis is initially there is destruction, but eventually there is new bone formation. That's where this ankylosing word comes from. Ankylosis is fusion. So in worst case scenarios, in a patient with ankylosing spondylitis, there will be fusion of sacroiliac joints or of the, of the spine. So osteoproliferation or new bone formation is a specific feature of um, this particular condition. And they used to do rheumatoid factor test in each and every patient suspected to have inflammatory condition. And by definition, patients with actual spondyloarthritis do not have positive rheumatoid factor. So that's that was the name, seronegative spondyloarthropathy. Interesting. I never knew that. Uh, are the symptoms, one that we haven't talked about much yet is juvenile spondyloarthritis. Are the symptoms similar in juvenile or can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So I am um, I'm an adult rheumatologist, so I don't practice pediatric rheumatology as much. But what um, I realize is enthesitis tends to be a quite common clinical feature in patients with juvenile spondyloarthritis. So it's also called enthesitis-related arthritis, and they could develop spondyloarthritis along the way. But uh, to be honest, I, I do not treat patients or diagnose, treat, diagnose patients with juvenile spondyloarthropathy much. Okay. We can set that one for a whole nother episode. Yeah, uh, <laughs> and my uh, colleagues could uh, could shed more light on this. Okay, excellent. Uh, in terms of treatments, so you talked about the different buckets of the disease. Uh, what are standard treatments for spondyloarthritis that people can expect to encounter? Um, that's a great question, and it would be dependent on what is the predominant clinical feature, is it spinal inflammation, then the treatment changes. If there is a lot of psoriasis and some spinal involvement, then the treatment changes. 
if someone has inflammatory bowel disease some of the drugs may make it worse so it depends on the diagnosis among these uh, this group of conditions but typically for axial spondyloarthritis which tends to be a common relatively common but underdiagnosed condition the predominant clinical feature is chronic back pain we call it inflammatory back pain when we call it inflammatory back pain is a patient who has chronic back pain for several months which usually starts before age of 45 gets better with activities but does not get better with the rest sometimes can wake them up from middle of the night uh, during the sleep responds very well to non steroidal anti inflammatory drugs and sometimes they have alternating buttock pains these are some features of inflammatory back pain so coming back to the treatment patients with axial spondyloarthritis who have inflammatory back pain as predominant uh, mechanism or peripheral joints the first medicine that we try um is NSAIDs Dr Danvey we've talked a little bit about the symptoms for spondyloarthritis and we've broken it down into uh axial spondyloarthritis and then peripheral can you talk a little bit about standard treatment approaches for both of those groups starting with the axial spondyloarthritis sure so when it comes to axial spondyloarthritis the management could be non pharmacological where there are no drugs involved or pharmacological where we give medications to improve the inflammation the non pharmacological management is equally important as pharmacological management in axial spondyloarthritis and that consists of smoking cessation management of comorbid anxiety depression sleep apnea and most importantly regular stretching exercises it is best to undergo group physical supervised physical therapy and continue those exercises regularly at home so it's very important to do regular exercises and they have been found to have anti inflammatory effect in axial spondyloarthritis among the pharmacological management options typically we start patients with regular NSAIDs so something like ibuprofen or naproxen or meloxicam about 50% patients respond very well to NSAIDs and we do not have to uh, go to the option of biologics in them unless they have contraindications or they do not tolerate the NSAIDs if someone cannot take NSAIDs or does not respond to NSAIDs the next option is biologics and small molecule drugs among the biologics we have different classes so the the most commonly used ones are tnf inhibitors and interleukin 17 inhibitors both have been fda approved for treatment of non radiographic disease as well as the ankylosing spondylitis there are five tnf inhibitors all of them are equally good and there are two interleukin 17 inhibitors they are equally good there are some nuances here if somebody has uveitis then one of the tumor necrosis factor alpha inhibitor one of the tnf inhibitor may not be as effective 
And in patients who also have inflammatory bowel disease, the interleukin-17 inhibitors are contraindicated because they can exacerbate the underlying inflammatory bowel disease. The most recent development is JAK inhibitors, which are oral medications. They have been found effective in patients with ankylosing spondylitis as well as non-radiographic disease. And uh, we use these three classes of medications, TNF inhibitors, interleukin-17 inhibitors, and JAK inhibitors based on the uh, appropriate clinical situation. Okay. And, and what about peripheral? So uh, peripheral spondyloarthritis, if patient has, say, psoriatic arthritis, we could start, depending on the severity of uh, the inflammation, we could start with traditional medications like methotrexate or uh, one of the newer oral molecule is apremilast. Uh, that, that has been uh, found to be useful for psoriasis as well as milder psoriatic arthritis. And again, there are several classes of biologics that we use in patients who have moderate to severe psoriatic arthritis, and they do include TNF inhibitors, interleukin-17 inhibitors, interleukin-23 inhibitors, as well as JAK inhibitors. And rarely we would use um, medicine like abatacept. Okay. And for peripheral, does the stretching and managing stress and anxiety and smoking cessation all support the first line of defense? So uh, non-pharmacological management option is very important for peripheral spinal arthritis, but how much effect it will have is something that depends on what measure we are talking about. For example, weight uh, and increased, so increased body weight or obesity is a chronic, we think that it's a chronic inflammatory state and some patients with psoriatic arthritis would have worse disease if they are obese as compared to if they are not. Obesity also may predict poor response to biologic medications. There's a relationship between fatty liver, obesity, and psoriatic arthritis. They all feed into each other. So it's important to have in, like, you know, have a healthier lifestyle to attain uh, ideal or normal body weight in patients with psoriatic arthritis in particular. Smoking cessation is very important in psoriatic arthritis because uh, smokers tend to have worse disease activity. Other thing uh, I would say is sleep apnea can really be a common condition and can contribute to aches and pains a lot such that patients seem to think that the drugs are not working while the drugs are doing this, their effect, their, their role. Uh, the sleep apnea is something that I think about when I see patients with spinal arthritis a lot. And uh, one more thing would be some patients with axial spinal arthritis may have peripheral arthritis. So they are an NSAIDs, their back symptoms are great, but they keep on having inflammation in the knees and ankles. There's a medicine called sulfasalazine that has been found to be useful in, in those uh, individuals. Now, when com coming to in inflammatory bowel disease-related arthritis, typically we use TNF inhibitors um, and we avoid interleukin-17 inhibitors. Interleukin-23 inhibitors have not been uh, yet approved or they are being studied. And JAK inhibitors are found to be useful in inflammatory bowel disease-related arthritis. So your recommendation I think it's safe to say that if you are experiencing the symptoms, see a rheumatologist, 
work out best treatment for your individual symptoms based on the guidelines? Sure. So um, you might have realized that there are nuances here. There are some symptoms these patients have that may make a particular class of medications contraindicated or not preferred as such. So ultimately, uh, it is best for the patients to discuss with their rheumatologists who are very well aware about the, the nuances and the complications of uh, giving medications to a patient. Uh, there is immunosuppression involved. There, there are risks of um, maybe skin cancer. There are some newer FDA black box warnings that come up. So ultimately, I, I would definitely say that it's your rheumatologist who will take a look at the whole situation and suggest the best options for you. And you could pick one of those options depending on your convenience. For example, some patients may be, you know, our patients are younger, uh, spinal arthritis patients typically are younger, and they may have, you know, work, work schedule. And if they cannot go for infusions, they can prefer self-injections and and that sort of thing. So I think work with your rheumatologist when it comes to the treatment. Yeah. And the, it seems like from my perspective, the as the treatments evolve, you end up with better quality of life for the patient, which is incredible. Sure. It is so heartening to say, uh, see, um, I'll take it back. It is so heartening to see in the last just 10 years, we have newer and newer medications that are approved to treat patients with spondylarthritis. So now we are in a situation where we do have effective therapies, but the problem remains that several patients, like you know, the several thousand of patients with actual spondylarthritis are walking around without a diagnosis because what they have is chronic back pain. There is no one specific test to be done. And these patients are not being referred to rheumatologists in a timely way. So we are missing the opportunity to start the treatment early in them. And uh, at Yale Spondyl Arthritis Program, that's what we do. Our focus is on trying um, to find ways to improve the early identification of actual spondyl arthritis such that we can use these effective therapies in them. Well, and there's a lot of good work going on in research around how do we improve uh, time to diagnosis. So grateful for that. Uh, when we talk about this disease, there are also some complications with it. Can you tell us a little bit about the complications that occur in this disease? Sure. So there are some comorbidities that arise in patients with actual spinal arthritis. The common ones are hypertension high cholesterol, and these can contribute to increased risk of heart disease. One more is osteoporosis. So although these patients may be forming more bone, that bone is not a high quality bone. So they do have osteoporosis and there is increased risk of fractures. So screening for osteoporosis is important. And as I said, the other comorbidity is sleep apnea and also kidney stones. So those are comorbid conditions. The complications of chronic inflammation can uh, be some other issues like rarely there can be amyloidosis or IgA nephropathy 
Sometimes there is scarring of the upper parts of the lungs called apical fibrosis. Rarely there can be amyloidosis, uh, as I said, and uh, sometimes coda equina syndrome where there is a neurological um, damage to the lower parts of the spinal cord and nerve roots such that patients develop weakness or incontinence. These are rare and nowadays we don't see because we have much better understanding so we are able to diagnose and treat the patients uh, effectively. So amyloidosis is quite rare nowadays. Good. So they're relatively rare across the board from the complication standpoint? Yes. And one more that I would say is uh, aortic valve can become leaky in some patients with ankylosing spondylitis who have advanced condition for several years. Okay. Are, is there anything that the community can do to reduce the occurrence of those complications from a non-pharmacological standpoint or a lifestyle standpoint? Sure. So having, um, so regular exercise is very important. Control of your diet, uh, body weight, reducing the traditional risk factors for cardiovascular disease like smoking cessation, very important. Getting adequate sleep and sleep, making sure your sleep quality is good, it's very important. And in general, for the late complications, more effectively we treat the inflammation, chronic inflammation, several of these complications can be avoided and that may include the effect on the bones that we call radiographic progression. Oh, interesting. That is very cool. Well, this has been incredible. I have one final question for you. Uh, what do you find most hopeful for the future for people living with spondyloarthritis? I would say the most hopeful um, thing that would happen is our primary care physicians and all other non-rheumatology physicians um, become as interested as rheumatologists in this condition and, and refer these patients timely to us so we can diagnose them, start them on effective therapies early, make these patients' symptoms as well as quality life quality of life better, but also prevent the long-term complications like spinal fusion if we start them treating like really early. And in this regard, for the scientific community, uh, I'm really hopeful that we will come up with a more precise and specific diagnostic biomarkers for axial spondyloarthritis, such that right now it's uh, it, we depend on our clinical judgment to find this, but it is a challenging task. So I really hope that we come up with a biomarker that, for diagnosis of axial spondyloarthritis. I think there are many would agree with you out there. Uh, well, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us. and for your commitment to the community. It is deeply appreciated. Uh, and thanks for walking us through uh, Spondyloarthritis 101. Uh, I think we're all probably better prepared for uh, understanding the disease after this conversation. Uh, it's, a, it's a pleasure to be here. And uh, I look forward to serving the Spondyloarthritis uh, patient and physician community for years to come. All right, thank you, Dr. Danby. SpondyCast was made possible by donations from the Spondylitis Association of America's individual members and our show's corporate sponsor, AbbVie. Since our founding in 1983, 
The Spondylitis Association of America has been the face, voice, and leading nationwide nonprofit, educating, empowering, and advocating for people living with spondyloarthritis. Through our extensive work with patients, the medical community, and partners, we provide information and resources to help people impacted by the disease live better lives and champion research to find a cure.